0: As the band's making their way off the stage, beloved, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. And uh, you're in for a treat. We're going to finish Romans chapter 12 today. Now, I had somebody ask me, people ask me sometimes, do you know how many sermons you were going to do? Or do you know how many you've done in Romans 12? And I look at them and honestly say, nope, I don't have a clue. I really don't know. You know, because it's funny, some, now preachers do this sometimes where it's like, man, it only took me four sermons to go through Romans 12. Or, it took me 40 sermons to go through Romans 12. And both of them mean it as like a, a boast, you know, like a spiritual brag or something, right? I just don't know. I, You know what? People ask me, like, do you break it down ahead of time? I really don't. I really don't. I pray about it that week. I ask God how far to go. And that's how far we go, right? But today we're going to finish up Romans 12. And this is a vital text of Scripture. And, and it's much because of what, you know, what Aaron was praying, this is true. You know, unless you are redeemed by the blood of Christ, unless you are a child of the living God, then Romans chapter 12 sounds to you like a list of, you know, to-dos. It sounds like a list of, of you know, things, you know, responsibilities that you have. And it sounds like a, a new telling of the law. It really is what it sounds like. But if you are redeemed, if you have been born again by the Holy Spirit and you have been rescued and and your debt paid by the blood of Christ, then you realize that really what Romans 12, beginning really in verse 9 is, is a description of Christ's likeness. It's a description of the kind of life that you and I are called to live as those who have been redeemed out of this fallen, darkened, sinful world, right? It's a description to us of what it means to actually grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want us to stand together and as we, as we finish out Romans chapter 12 this morning, I want us to go back to verse 9 and begin reading this series of commands and exhortations that Paul makes to us. And not, I mean, Paul's the instrument, but really we know this is the Spirit of God speaking through Paul. This is the Word of God, right? For by so doing, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you that you have given to us your holy word. Father, it is a good gift that you have given to us, Lord, that you would reveal yourself in written word, that you would, you know, give us the ability to understand it, that Father God, you would send your spirit to be our teacher and to testify to Christ, that Lord, we would have your word, be able to study your word and be able to hear your word is a great gift of grace. I'm just grateful that you have seen fit to reveal yourself to us. And I pray that we wouldn't take that for granted. I pray, Lord God, we would not take for granted the fact that we can gather together in this place with one another and study your word together and, Father God, submit our hearts and our lives to it regarding your word as the authority that it is because that doesn't happen everywhere. And we, we are grateful, Father God, that you have given to us to hear the voice of Christ through the preaching of the word of God because that's not given to every person. And we're grateful, Father God, for the fellowship of the saints that we have here because, Father God, that's not everywhere. And so I pray that, Lord God, you would make us a grateful people, a grateful people that delights to bring, you know, glory to your name and delights to please you by being obedient ...to your commands and your exhortations. who did, A people who delight and desire to be made more into the image of Christ... ...to put the old man to death and to walk in the newness of life. I pray that that would be the desire of every single person in this room today. And so God, I know that, that your word never goes forth... ...except that it accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. And so I pray that your purpose this morning would be that of grace. I pray that your purpose this morning would be that of blessing and not cursing. That it would be the, the blessing of, of edification and not hardening. So God, come and please do your work in our midst and let our hearts be pliable and soft in your hands that you might do in us And through us, what brings glory to your holy name? Because ultimately, that's what matters more than anything else. So thank you for this day. And thank you for this congregation. And God, may you bless us richly as we study your word together. And I pray these things in the the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Beloved, we live in a world that's increasingly corrupt and openly evil, don't we? I mean, I know I'm not telling you anything when I say that to you, but we are living in a world that is more and more openly and, and just um, unabashedly contrary to God and to his truth, where truth and morality is in constant decay, a world in which reality lots of times seems unreal, doesn't it? I mean, you just sometimes you, you look at what's going on in our world and you think, and this sounds like a dystopian novel. What in the world is this? It seems like a movie more than real life sometimes. In living in this world, we're faced with, you know, a, a very serious question. And that question is as those who have been delivered from this present evil age, by the blood of Christ, as those who have been forgiven our many sins and made children of the living God by grace through faith in Christ alone, how are we to live in this world? How do we get along in this world? How do we live in this world in such a way as to bring glory to the God who saved us? How do we walk in a way and live in a way that, that shows that we've been raised from death to walk in the newness of life. How do we walk as our Lord and Savior did? Right? And that's the question really. Those questions, that, sub, that group of questions, that's really what Paul has been answering for us throughout Romans chapter 12 through these exhortations and these commands that he's been giving to us. He's been telling us how it is we ought to live as those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Now I want to take note again. And I want to point this out one more time. Even as we're leaving Romans chapter 12 this morning. But, but I want you to hear me say this one more time. Paul is not. Paul is not telling us here how we ought to live in order that we might be saved. He's not saying live like this. And you will be saved. That is decidedly not what he is saying. If you have read Romans 1-11, through you know that can't be what he is saying, right? Instead, he is telling us how to live because we have been saved. How to live because we're no longer part of this world in rebellion to God. He's telling us how we live in order to imitate... The character of Christ and to grow in grace and conformity to our Lord and our Savior, right? And the only way that we can even begin to fulfill these commands from the heart is by beginning where Paul began in this chapter, right? Look at it again, verses one and two, where he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers. By the mercies of God, that is, in light of the gospel, in light of justification and sanctification and the ultimate glorification that we'll experience, in light of the fact that we're adopted and in our positions as sons and daughters of God, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. Right? We can't fulfill these commands apart from hearing the words of Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. And responding to them positively. Right? And that's certainly true of the text that we're going to look at this morning. What is the proper Christian response to evil? What is the proper Christian response to evil? to evil actions that are committed against us? What is the proper response that we're to have toward those who treat us in a wicked way? Now, I want you to see what's going on. After dealing with our relationships with one another in the body of Christ, Paul is again returning to our interaction with those who are outside the church. And we know that, beloved, because of what he says here. We know that because of what he instructs us here in verses 17 through 21. Because here's the deal. If we were dealing with people inside the body of Christ, the proper response wouldn't be what he tells us here. The proper response, if we were dealing with our brothers and sisters in Christ, would be to bear with them and to extend forgiveness to them in Christ and then to be reconciled to one another, right? Right? But that's not what he tells us here. The focus of verses 17 through 21 is how we respond to the hostile actions of the world in which we live, to the hostility to Christ and to his people. And Paul tells us here how we are to respond in a way that pleases our Lord. Now, this is kind of a follow on really introduced this concept back in verse 14, right? You remember, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. And I'll repeat what I said last time as sort of the caveat behind these commands, right? Like what he's talking about here, this text does not forbid proper self-defense, nor does it, you know, preclude the defense of your family or the protection of the innocent, He's not teaching here that you should silently endure physical or sexual abuse. He's not forbidding legal action or an appeal to proper authorities, right? Calling the police because of criminal action. What this text has to do with is our individual personal interactions with those who are the enemies of Christ. It deals with the evil and the indignity that we suffer for the sake of Christ and our allegiance to Him. The personal evil that we endure because we live in a fallen world. It's dealing with the evil that is perpetrated against us not because we're jerks, or not because we are offensive, or not because we're, we deserve a swift kick in the rear end. It's dealing with what we endure for the sake of Christ and how we navigate in this culture that does not esteem Christ like we do, to put it nicely. And the first thing that Paul commands us is this. Look at it. Verses 17 and 18. He tells us to seek to live peaceably with all people. We are to seek to live peaceably with all people. Now look what he says again, verses 17 and 18. He says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now here's the deal. This is the main thesis of this, of of this really, this whole section. And Paul begins his exhortation here, his command, really with a command of negation. Telling us what it is that we are not to do first, okay? And the command is simple. Look at it. Repay no one evil for evil. Now, why do you suppose Paul starts right there? Why do you suppose he starts right there, beloved? You know why. He starts right there because the most natural response in the world to somebody committing evil against us is to do what? Do what? Get even, right? John F. Kennedy, that was his whole thing. Don't get mad. Get even. Right? That is the natural inclination in our hearts. It's to get even. It's to strike back. In fact, usually it's to drop the hammer. If somebody acts in a way toward me that is, that is, you know, evil and, and, and hateful and, and nasty, like isn't the first response in your heart to hit them back so hard that they don't try that ever again? Right? That's the most natural response of the human heart. It's the most natural thing to respond in kind to evil that is done to us. And nothing but the new nature, nothing but the new man in Christ can enable anyone to overcome that natural disposition. Are you with me? Well, we naturally want to retaliate. If you've got children, unless they're weirdly and strangely compliant. You know what I'm talking about, right? One kid hits the other, then the other one hits him back a little harder, then the other one hits the other one back a little bit harder, and then that kid raises the stakes and grabs the, you know, die-cast metal dump truck and whacks the other one over the head with it, and then the next thing you know, you're going to the ER to get stitches, right? just how it works. It's the most natural thing in the world. But here's the thing. If we're in Christ... We're no longer natural men and women, are we? Right? We're no longer natural men and women, are we? And even more, to repay evil for evil, beloved, is not an option for us. Because quite frankly, what is at stake is more than just us. And that's what Paul's getting at here. Beloved, when somebody insults you, right? When somebody calls into question your integrity, when someone verbally abuses you or slanders you or ostracizes you, maybe they put you on blast on social media or they take advantage of you. When they steal from you or assault you or commit an act of violence, maybe they punch you or slap you for speaking the gospel truth. Or they make your workplace difficult. When that happens, all because you are a Christian, all because you hold to the truth of the Word of God, listen to me, you must refuse to retaliate in kind because there is something that is bigger at stake than your honor. And that's why Paul commands us here instead to give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Now that, that word there in the, in the Greek that's translated as give thought, it means to think about something ahead of time. It means to sit there and really think about something ahead of time. Roll it around in your mind. Consider how it is that you need to respond if someone acts towards you in an evil way, in a, in a wicked way. Give thought to it. And in particular, give thought to what is honorable or give thought to what will be considered proper in the sight of all people. Now, he's not saying, you know, adjust the way that you act toward the mores of the people that are in our world. Because if we did that, we'd act just like them. That's not what he's saying. The point that he is making here is this we got to give thought to the way that we respond to other people and how we respond to evil so that we do not give people an excuse to take offense at our response and then therefore cast reproach upon the gospel. Are you with me? Are you with me? Wake up. The truth is, here's the truth about fallen human beings. There is yet a vestige of god's moral law written upon their fallen hearts right it's twisted but they can recognize what is right and what is good and what is virtuous even if they themselves do not pursue those things right i mean in fact often is this not true that often the favorite pastime of somebody who's lost is to tell a christian how they ought to live isn't that true Paul's point, beloved, is that we're to live in such a way that our response to evil is such that even our pagan society is left without an accusation against us. When evil is perpetrated against us, we must not respond in kind. We must stand fast in the strength of Christ, buck up, and refuse to return evil for evil. And we do so Because we realize that as Christians, we're under scrutiny at all times, aren't we? We're under scrutiny at all times. And what's at stake is the validity of the gospel. What's at stake is the testimony of Christ. What is at stake is what we say about the gospel's power to transform a fallen man or woman and make of them a new creature, right? Right? And not just our own honor. As if our own honor is the most important thing in the world. Can I just tell you what? It's not. It might be to you, your honor, before everybody else. That might be the most important thing to you, but God doesn't care. That's not the most important thing to God. It's His honor. Not yours. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I don't want us to get this wrong. It's not, that, it's not that in an objective sense we can make the gospel invalid or that in an objective sense we can undermine the essential identity of Christ. We can't do that, right? The gospel is objectively true whether we act like it is or not. True? Right? And Christ is objectively Lord and Savior and King whether we reflect that in our own lives or not. True. True. But we can damage, beloved, the validity of the gospel and the testimony of Christ in the eyes of fallen men and women, can't we? We sure can. How many times have you heard somebody say, and sometimes rightly so, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I don't want to be one. When they see people act in certain ways. Like if that person is a Christian, I don't want to be one. How we respond. To the indignity and the evil that we face in this world says a lot about the truth of the gospel in the eyes of other people. When we act like everybody else, man, people have the right to question what difference the gospel has really made in our lives, don't they? Oh, you mean the gospel just means you can act however you want to and then you just say, I'm sorry, and everything's forgiven? Paul's getting at is that we ought to think about our testimony to a watching world. We've got to give serious thought to what would be honoring to the Lord in whatever situation we find ourselves. What's most honoring to the Lord here? How can I handle this in a way that I find strength in Christ and I also cause other people to see the gospel at work? How do I do that? And the only way to do that is to get outside yourself and see the bigger picture, right? It's not just about you. What's at stake is the honor of Christ and the honor of God and the reputation of the church to which, by the grace of God, I now belong. People will judge the gospel; they will judge the whole of the Christian message by what they see in us. So here's how we need to think about it. And look, I'm not just preaching to you; I'm preaching at me. Here's how we need to think about it. I have to realize this: that look, you know what? By God's grace, I have received eternal life. And I need if I need to suffer indignity or disrespect or some kind of evil so that through it I can display the honor and the majesty of Christ and the power of the gospel to change the human heart, then you know what? I need to do that. I need to do that that act of evil, that attack, that insult, that slander, whatever, it might be the only opportunity that I have to demonstrate the transformation that Christ has worked in my life through the power of the gospel and to show what it means to be born again and actually live a life not for myself but for the praise of God, right? And if I miss that, or if I waste that opportunity on the altar Of my honor, on the altar of me, what have I done for the kingdom of God? Not a thing. Now you might hear that and say, "Well, that's really easy to say. You know, it's easy for you to say. You don't know what I've endured." I want you to think about Paul. I'm not going to stand up here and try to compare stories with you. Let's look at Paul. Think about Paul when he was in prison for preaching the gospel. Do you remember, well, he'd been in prison because he he went around freely preaching the word, and he was talking about that situation when he was writing to the Philippians. And in the very first chapter of that letter, he's talking about. "...being in prison and those being outside the prison preaching Christ." And he says this, starting verse 15. He says, "...some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter, the ones doing it from goodwill, they do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition." Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Tell those jerks to shut up. Oh no, that's not what it says. Sorry. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Now, why am I quoting that? Because it gives us remarkable insight into the heart of Paul when evil was done to him. Paul didn't react in the flesh, did he? He didn't complain about the people who preached that of vengeful and evil motives. He didn't complain that they were seeking to make his imprisonment worse. He didn't rail against them. He didn't demand revenge. He didn't return evil for evil. Instead, you know what he did? He took the thorn out of their actions. He he took it right out. And here's how he did it. He found joy in the fact that Christ was proclaimed and he removed the very sting of their offense against him. And that's because he gave thought to what was honorable in the sight of all and to what would give honor to Christ and magnify the gospel. If I'm in prison and in their preaching out of envy and nastiness, my affliction is worse, so what? At least Christ is being proclaimed and people are getting saved and I'm rejoicing in that. Amen. Right? Right? No one could accuse Paul of being all talk and no walk. He was the quintessential picture of a redeemed man. And he handles this perfectly. Now, rather than repaying evil for evil, Paul commands us, look at it, if possible, so far as it depends upon you. It depends on you. Live peaceably with all. Our goal should be to do all that we can to live peaceably with those that are around us, right? That's, that's what he's getting at. This, is not, this doesn't take rocket science to translate this, right? To understand this. We're not needlessly to stir up strife. We are not to unnecessarily cause controversy... Or to live in a manner that causes irritation and aggravation to people on a personal level. In other words, I think what he's getting at here is this. Like, look, a, a Christian is somebody by nature, by nature, well, new nature, desires peace and promotes social harmony and promotes, promotes neighborly Kindness, that's the idea. Like if you are always the lightning rod of controversy, the problem is probably not with other people. The problem is probably with you, right? Paul's saying that's not the way you ought to be. You live peaceably with everybody as much as you can because one of the marks of a Christian is winsome and a friendly spirit that delights in peace and in harmony and not in argument and in division and in taking up sides. In fact, Paul kind of speaks to this in his first letter to the Thessalonians when he says, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9-12, to these words, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly. And to mind your own affairs. And to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders. So that that your life before people who are not saved is not unnecessarily offensive. And so that you're dependent on no one. We're to seek to be peaceable, right? That's our goal. Is it always possible? No. It's not always possible. Sadly, we might want to live at peace with those who are around us, but sometimes that's not possible. And if peace requires... If to have some kind of a peace requires that we violate biblical truth or we violate biblical conviction or we violate devotion to christ or or christian principle or if somebody says we can be at peace here are the conditions and the conditions are not lawful for you to accept because they don't comport with the truth and the glory of god and we can't with a good conscience agree with them then peace has got to be sacrificed right right if peace means complicity with sin or error or if it encourages these, then peace can't be achieved. You understand? Paul's not calling us here to peace at the price of truth. And there are some people that are that way, even among professing Christians, that are like peace at all costs, like Neville Chamberlain, right? In Great Britain, for you that don't know history, Neville Chamberlain was the prime minister of Great Britain when Hitler invaded Poland. And he said, oh, uh, you know, we're just going to placate Adolf. And then he proclaimed that there was peace, peace in his time and he was woefully ignorant. Right? There are people that are like that. But we can't sacrifice truth for a false peace. And you know what? It takes real wisdom to discern that. You remember the very man that writes these words. You remember that when Paul wrote to the Galatians, he strongly confronted the Judaizers, didn't he? the the preachers that had gone in there after him that said, you know what, um, the only way that you can really be saved is not through faith in Christ alone, but the way that you can be saved is through faith in Jesus plus circumcision plus obeying the Jewish ceremonial law, right? And Paul's response was not, well, they're close. I don't want to say anything that might... Ruffle feathers, you know. I'm not, I'll just stay silent for the sake of peace, you know. I don't want to upset anybody. And then allow them to corrupt the gospel of grace, right? He didn't do that. He didn't do that. This man who sought to live peaceably with all and commands us to do the same when he was dealing with an error, a grievous error in the gospel that would condemn people to hell... He said, look, I'm astonished, Right into the Galatians, I'm astonished you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are running to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And then he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed let him go to hell. As we have said before, so now I say to you again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Right? That's pretty bold, isn't it? You remember he later on confronted Peter. Remember Peter? Because Peter was playing the, you know, he's, Peter was falling under the Judaizers trap. He was He was refusing to eat with the Gentiles and acting like he was oh so Jewish back, you know, again. And Paul's like, what are you doing, clown? Well, he didn't call him clown. That would have been unkind. But he does say to him like, what are you doing, man? You don't live like a Jew anymore and you're commanding Gentiles not to live like Jews? Like, what are you doing? We can't go along with falsehood in order to, to create a false peace. But listen... We're not to seek to be disturbers of the peace either. If we can remain faithful to the gospel and be at peace with other people, we ought to do that. And if standing firmly on the truth disturbs the peace, then so be it. Now listen to what I'm going to say to you. That doesn't mean you go looking for a fight. And there are some guys, and I see them sometimes on social media, that deliberately go looking for a fight and then have their buddy video it to show what really bold Christians they are. And sometimes when I'm listening to them, I'm thinking to myself, it's not what you're saying that's carrying the greatest offense right now. It's you, dude. It's the way you're saying it. It's the way that you're acting. It's arrogance that's clearly coming across. We don't go looking for a fight. Yes, we must contend for the faith that was once delivered to all the saints, Jude 3. The church must be the pillar and the buttress of the truth, right? We've got to stand on the word of truth, which is offensive to fallen men. But we must never ourselves be the source of offense, right? 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 As Paul told Timothy... The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach. Patiently enduring evil. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. I just want you to hear that again. I want you to just hear that run again. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Kind to everyone. Able to teach. Patiently enduring evil. Correcting his opponents. With gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Below, we're to speak the truth in love with a heart that desires the good of our fellow man and with a heart that desires that they experience the mercy that we've received from the hands of the Almighty God. We ought to be winsome and gracious. And, and even as the Jewish remnant were when they were in exile in Babylon, God commanded them through Jeremiah, Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. As far as it depends on you, as far as it depends on me. Live peaceably with all men. Don't be the cause of conflict. If peace can't be had with some people, as invariably will be the case, the responsibility for discord, the responsibility for the fracture must not be traceable to our failure to do all on our part that's in keeping with holiness and truth and love. Don't let it be our fault. Some people will be, just refuse to be at peace with us because they're mad at God and we represent God. So be it. But the idea is that we ought to strive to, to live in such a way that no one can make an honest accusation against us. Live in such a way that if there's a breakdown in peace, it's not your fault. And if somebody wants to say it's your fault, they'll have to lie in order to say it. That's the idea. Right? We're to try to live peaceably with everybody, but some will perpetrate evil against us because of Christ. So how do we respond to that when it happens? He tells us right here, verse verses verse 19 and 20. Just look at verse 19 first. This is what he says. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. He already said repay no one evil for evil. He feels the need to, to repeat himself. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And notice what Paul does here, right? He throws that word beloved in. Beloved. Why is he doing that? Well, he's doing it for much the same reason that I do it when I call you beloved. First, it's making a connection between God's love for you and the commands that he gives to you, right? Second, you know, it's a reminder that When I'm preaching to you, I have your best interests at heart. I'm not preaching to you as someone whom I hate. I'm preaching to you as someone whom I love, right? So my desire is good for you. And he just says, look, man, when somebody acts in evil towards you, don't seek revenge. Don't retaliate. And don't take justice into your own hands. Don't lash out. Don't respond in kind. Instead, leave it to God's wrath. Give place to God's wrath. Trust God to deal with it. That's what he's saying. Trust God to deal with the evil that's perpetrated against you in a manner that is perfect, because he will. Because he alone can. Look, vengeance doesn't belong to us. We're not the judge. We're not the judge. It belongs to God alone. Paul actually is quoting here from Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 35, which reads like this. Vengeance is mine and recompense. For the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand. And their doom comes swiftly. Let's talk about the enemies of God. God will judge his enemies and the enemies of his people. And he'll do it with a perfect thoroughness. And so it's not our place to usurp God's place. It's not our place to, to, to edge God out of the throne. So we can make sure things are dealt with properly. So we can make sure we approve of the, ways, the way things get handled. Now, don't misunderstand me. It's not that we're not to be concerned about judgment or, or about justice. Okay, some people will say that, like, what you're saying is you should never be worried about justice. No, that's not what I'm saying. And no Christian in his right mind is unconcerned about justice. In fact, that's not even the point. The point is, is that only God can discharge true justice. And here's why. We are sinful, right? And God alone is perfectly just. We are biased, aren't we? And we are incapable of arriving And a full and a true judgment. A righteous judgment. But God alone is unbiased. He alone can judge not just the actions. But the motives, right? And the heart. God can judge in a way that none of us possibly can. Because he knows every detail of every situation. But you know what? Even more than that. Any act of evil is ultimately against Him, isn't it? Isn't it? And He'll settle all accounts. And God will do it without error. And so every Christian, we ought to live in this world forbearing personal offenses for the sake of Christ, not because those offenses will never be dealt with, or not because, you know, you know, we, we, we're not concerned about justice, but rather certain that one day, one way or another, those offenses will be dealt with perfectly by the perfectly holy God. And no one will get away with anything. What you sow, you reap. God will handle it. In fact, He'll handle it better than you would. And He'll handle it with more justice than you would. And because of that, we can rest in the justice that God will bring. All things will be set right. Here's what's going to happen. Either your adversary for the sake of Christ, your enemy, who is truly God's enemy, either He will pay His debt in hell. Or... And here's the greater hope. Those offenses will be righted one day in the mercy of God. When that person's heart is changed. And they repent and trust in Christ. And their sins will have been judged on the head of the the Savior Jesus Christ. Just like ours have been. Right? Right? To see it in this way... Beloved, it demands a transformed heart, doesn't it? Doesn't it? For someone... Think about it. Think about how you would respond to someone who has been your enemy for years despised you, hated you, tried to drag you down at every opportunity, if that person actually got saved and their sins were under the blood of Christ and they were now your brother or your sister in Jesus, could you hug them and in honesty say, I love you, brother. It takes a regenerate heart to do that, doesn't it? doesn't it? Beloved, we must give place to God's wrath and to his vengeance. Then here's why that's so important. I want you to hear me when I say this, okay? It's not just that if you react to evil with evil, you're a sorry excuse for a Christian. That is true, but that's not all of it. And the issue isn't so much like, you know, I'm just going to, you know, grit my teeth and, you know, endure this because maybe God will you know, get them. That's the exact opposite of this heart. We've got to give place to God's wrath and to his vengeance because of this reason. Beloved, the very core of ungodliness and unrighteousness, is it not the very core of ungodliness and unrighteousness to presume to take the place of God Isn't it to stand in his place? To usurp his throne and take everything into our own hands and do as we please. Isn't that the very soul of ungodliness and unrighteousness? The answer to that is yes, it is. To elbow God off the throne and to assume a position that we have no right to hold. That's the very heart of ungodliness. But it takes faith to commit yourself to God. It takes faith to commit yourself to His just judgment. It takes faith to trust in Him in all of your circumstances and to do that which extols His glory and is for your good. And, And there's no place where that is so practical as is right here. When we are mistreated and abused and reviled and treated in an evil way... Rather than to do something on our own strength to give place to God's wrath, to trust Him, to forego personal vengeance, and to commit ourselves to Him as the just judge. That is the most practical, tangible act of faith and trust in the Lord whenever we are in the midst of being the victim of evil. In fact, it's exactly, again, what Paul did. I hope you're noticing a theme. I'm picking out Paul here. He's not being in the ivory tower here saying, now you guys need to do this. I will never do this, but you really need to do this because it's good for you guys. Notice this is what Paul did. You remember his words to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14. And if you don't, I'll read them to you. He said to Timothy, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. That's remarkable, isn't it? Paul warned Timothy about Alexander, but he didn't seek revenge. At that moment, you know, being in jail, the only revenge he could have sought, could have, could have gotten would be to like, you know, call him all kinds of names and denigrate him and tell stories about him. But he doesn't do that. He didn't seek revenge. He didn't have to seek vengeance. Paul was comforted in the fact that, you know what? God reigns supreme. He's ultimately going to vindicate himself and his people. And Alexander's not going to escape that. In fact, if people persist in their enmity and their rebellion against God, they're not going to succeed. They will come under judgment. And in that, we can be comforted. The very reason, beloved, why worldlings seek revenge, why they are, are, are you know, like, worldlings can't let things go. they got to get revenge. they got to... Let me tell you why. It's because they reject the idea of eternal justice. Right? They don't believe that one day God will come in Christ Jesus to judge the world in righteousness. And so, therefore, they've got to take vengeance personally and immediately because they don't trust god to do it beloved we got to be qualitatively different we are to leave vengeance to god and not take it upon ourselves to deliver it in fact paul says to the contrary if your enemy is hungry feed him if he's thirsty give him drink for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head I want you to notice what Paul's doing here. He's he's quoting from Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22 in order to cinch his case. He does this a lot, right? Paul's always going back to the Old Testament and bringing it forward and saying, hey, look, it was true then, it's true now. He says, instead of seethings against your enemies, serve them. Act in kindness and gracious forbearance towards those who work evil against you. That idea here of giving food or giving drink, that's an inclusive idea. In other words, what he's getting at here, beloved, is that we're to look for every opportunity to do good to our enemies and to bless them rather than to curse them and to love our neighbor even when he is unlovable. And the reason we're to do that is because that's how God treated us. I read this while we were singing. I want to read this to you again. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. We can't forget what we were. We were evildoers, weren't we? Weren't we? I was. We were liars and haters of God. We loved the God we created in our own mind. We didn't like the God of Scripture much, though. I was in wretched rebellion against God. I had no desire at all to submit my mind or my heart to anyone other than me. I thought I was strong and I was weak. I thought I was respectable and I was a sinner. I was a wretched man. A wicked man. You know what's wonderful about the gospel? Is that the gospel frees you to say the truth about who you were. Yes, you're a new creature in Christ, but stop acting like before that you were something to brag about because you weren't. And so it gives you no right to be offended by sinners who act like sinners because they're sinners we got to see our enemies for what they are. They're weak. They're sinners. They're enemies of God. They're taken captive by Satan to do his will. They're blinded to the gospel. They're slaves to sin. They're in spiritual darkness. They're alienated from the life that is in Christ. we got to see them as they are and pity them because as they are, we once were. And we would still be that way. We would still be that way apart from the abundant grace of God which He has lavished upon us for nothing in us at all, but despite what is in us. We're to bless our enemies and pray for them and love our enemies. God will handle vengeance. He'll handle it. He'll judge His enemies in the world and the apostate church when it pleases Him to do so. Or perhaps you will give them grace to repent and believe in Christ. But it's God's business and not ours. You hearing me? And as for us, look, we're to do good to those who wish us evil. Paul says, because by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. This might be one of the most debated phrases in all the Romans. You will heap burning coals upon his head. What does that mean? Well, some people will say that responding by responding in kindness to your enemy, you can ensure that on the day of judgment, that person will receive additional judgment from the hand of God. I'm just going to tell you right now, I flat out reject that one, and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. I mean, I just don't think that's the heart of this. And and the reason I say that is to respond in kindness so you get that result would seem to be just a spiritual version of enacting revenge against someone, wouldn't it? I'm going to be kind to you so God will really stick it to you on the day of judgment. Have some bread and water. But that doesn't work. That's not it. Some people will say, well, what it'll do is, is it will cause your enemy to be ashamed of himself, to be publicly shamed. It will cause your enemy to to be embarrassed publicly, right? Because you're kind to him and he's a jerk to you. That might be true. But is that the real goal? Again, I think that the goal is nobler than that. I believe what Paul is getting at here is that doing good to your enemy is the best means of subduing him or winning him over to the gospel that in treating your enemy with kindness, he will be shocked and he will be driven to consider what he's done to you. That he might feel contrition and godly sorrow. That he might be confronted by this practical expression of God's love and grace through you. And that it might lead him to consider the gospel. And in humility and in brokenness and in embarrassment and shame. He might come to Christ through repentance and receive salvation. In fact, John Stott says, our personal responsibility is to love and serve our enemy and genuinely to seek his highest good. The coals of this fire, the coals of, of fire may heap that, that they may heap upon him are intended to heal, not hurt, to win, not alienate. In fact, to shame him into repentance. I think that's the greatest goal, beloved. Not just Trying to ensure that God really sticks it to them on the day of judgment. Now, there is, of course, truth in all of those interpretations. If we respond to kindness to people that persecute us and they don't repent, yes, there will be additional judgment for them on the day of judgment. Or they will be ashamed and embarrassed, perhaps, you know, in in, in society by their actions. But what great comfort is in that? Not much. Our goal in being kind when someone mistreats us and being gracious when someone does evil to us is to be the instrument by which God might bring them to salvation. That's the greatest good. That's the greatest good. It's like Lincoln said, I kill my enemy when I make my enemy my friend. And then Paul brings us to the conclusion of this section and really all of Romans 12. Let's look at what he says in verse 21. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, here's the deal. That, that statement, that command, it serves as both a conclusion to this particular section that we're looking at that started in verse 17, as well really to all of Romans 12. And let me explain what I mean, and, and let me start by looking first at the big picture, right? In the big picture sense. This statement here, it serves as a reminder. This command serves as a reminder of the truth that the evil and the sin that is still in us, right? Because none of us is completely sanctified, right? Right? We all fight sin. We all have to fight sin until the day that we die, None of us is thoroughly sanctified yet. To be thoroughly sanctified is to be glorified and none of you are shining like the resurrected Christ right now. So I feel like I'm on safe ground to say, right? None of us is fully sanctified. But the only way that we can overcome the evil and the sin that still is in us is by positive good. By positive good. The positive good of these commands carried out in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit who is God in us. Right? Like The idea and the argument that I don't have the strength to do this is invalid. Yes, you do. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. He is God in you. He is the indwelling comforter and sanctifier of your soul. You have all the strength you need, living in you in the person of the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Right? The unbeliever has no control over evil. All he can do is be overcome by it. But we can overcome evil by doing good. And the way that we do that is by doing the will of God, right? So you think about what we've what we've read. We overcome evil. We do that by pursuing godliness and uprightness by the power of the Spirit. And we do that by God's grace in doing every good work that Paul describes here and thereby walking as Christ walked in this world. And so when you consider everything that we've been reading since verse 9, right? Loving God with a genuine love. Hating evil and clinging to good. Loving each other with brotherly affection, showing each other honor, being fervent in spirit in our service to the Lord, remaining patient in tribulation by rejoicing in the eternal hope and being constant in prayer, caring for our brothers and sisters in need and showing hospitality, blessing those who persecute us, sharing the same mind and the same heart with one another, walking in humility, refusing to repay evil for evil, living peaceably with, with all, even doing good to our enemies, when we obey these commands, we overcome evil with positive good. In fact, when Martin Lloyd-Jones, he reminds us that when we obey these commands and that we walk in the Spirit, and we follow Christ, He says, every time you do this, you are making you, every time you obey these commands, you are making yourself stronger and better. You are growing in grace. You really are overcoming evil in and of yourself. And He's right. He's right. You're establishing a pattern of Holy Spirit empowered godliness and the influence and the attraction of evil grows less and less day by day doesn't it? doesn't it? but in the nearer sense again this is Paul's capstone to our response to evil in this world that starts in verse 17 He says, overcome evil with good. He's saying, look, in the personal relationships that you have, the cycle of evil will only be broken by good. And since the people that are involved in this thing are you, who's a Christian, and those in the world who are not, you're the only one who can break the cycle. So do it. Break the cycle. Paul doesn't want us to be overcome in this life by the evil that we encounter. And by, 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 by the evil that we sometimes suffer, but his point is this: you can't fight fire with fire. You got to employ a different weapon. You got to employ an otherworldly one. And the key to overcoming evil is positive good. It might not always seem that way in the moment. You know, sometimes you do good to someone who does evil, and it doesn't seem in the moment like it makes any difference at all. Right? You ever been there? It may not seem that it does like anything. It always, may not always seem that it does well, anything in the moment. But listen, I want, me to, I want you to hear me say this. Good always wins in the end. If you're betting on a sprint, take evil. If you're betting on a marathon, take good. Because good always wins in the end. Only good can overcome evil. And that's at the very heart of the gospel, isn't it? I mean, isn't it? The greatest example of good overcoming evil is God sending His Son into this world to redeem redeem wretched sinners and enemies of God. Is that not true? Jesus Christ, right? The epitome, the embodiment of good entered this evil world to rescue sinners at enmity with God. And from the very beginning, He was opposed, wasn't He? From the very beginning, evil was done with intent toward him. Think about it. When Herod heard of his birth, his first response was not to throw a birthday party. His first response, when he heard that the king of the Jews was born, was to order that all baby boys in the town of Bethlehem be slaughtered so that he might kill him. There were the rumors regarding his parentage, right? Even as he grew to manhood, His own family doubted him. His brothers thought he was crazy. When he began his ministry, although some heard him gladly, look, the religious leaders despised him and and sought to turn the hearts of the people against him. Didn't they? They saw him as a threat to their religion. As a threat to their power, as a threat to their self-declared righteousness. So they asked him gotcha questions. They weren't interested in the truth. They were just interested in catching him. They wanted to trip him up. And every time he made them look foolish. Not by setting out to make them look like fools, but by speaking the truth and revealing their foolish hearts. Filled with hatred and jealousy, they schemed and plotted to put him to death. Even one of his own disciples betrayed him into evil hands. And did so by kissing him. That's evil. He allowed himself to be arrested on trumped up charges. To be convicted of crimes he didn't commit. And to be sentenced to death. And they beat him. And they tore his beard. And they spit on the Lord of glory. And they whipped him. And they ultimately crucified him. And yet as he hung on the cross, his first words were a prayer for his tormentors. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Everything that they did was evil. Everything. And it seemed as if evil overcame good, incarnate, but it didn't. Evil did not triumph. Evil was conquered by good. How? On the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ endured the death that we deserve. On the cross, he endured a criminal's death. But more importantly, he suffered the wrath of God against his people, against us. And the penalty and the power of sin and evil were extinguished on the cross as Jesus Christ poured out his blood and endured the wrath of God in the sinner's place so that wretched people like you and me could receive the forgiveness of our sins and righteousness with God. That's a good thing. Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous so that he might bring us to God. He died. He was buried. You know what? He rose on the third day. And it's to demonstrate that his sacrifice was sufficient to defeat evil. To defeat sin and the wages of sin, which is death. That's a good thing. He arose, unconquerable, incorruptible. And he sits at the right hand of God. And he will come to judge the living and the dead. To complete the salvation of his people. And to eternally judge his enemies. That's a good thing. And in the meantime, praise God, in the meantime, the Lord Jesus Christ has sent the Holy Spirit into this world to testify of Him and to regenerate spiritually dead sinners and to bring them to faith in Christ and to enable us to walk in the newness of life and to sanctify us and to make us who were once those who disregarded and hated God to live lives that desire To be pleasing to Him. Lives lived out of gratitude and love for the God who loved us first. That is good. Right? Only good. Only infinite good. Can overcome evil. And the Lord Jesus Christ is infinite good incarnate. Beloved, He's our Savior. He's our Lord. And He's our example. To do even as he did. So overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Father I am. In all of you. I'm in all of your great wisdom. That surpasses. The wisest of men. I'm in. I'm in all of. Of. Your promises and your truth. I mean, I'm just amazed, Father, at at just your character and the greatness of who you are. Let us live lives pleasing to you, Father. Please lead us to live lives that are pleasing to You. Please lead us, Lord God, to, to walk in godly obedience to the commands that You have given to us, not out of fear, improper fear, not, Lord, out of some misguided and misdirected attempt to make ourselves acceptable in Your sight. We can't do that. But move us, Lord, to really and truly... Live in obedience to these commands that we have been studying now for quite some time in Romans 12, that we would live in obedience to these commands because we have been saved and because it is right and it is good and because it brings glory to your holy name. And there are some commands here, Lord, that are easier for us than others, that That, that we more naturally respond to than we do others. And yet, Lord, every single one of us, if we're in Christ, has the Spirit of God dwelling in us. And we can, we are, we are enabled by your Holy Spirit, Lord, to, to do exactly what is commanded here. So help us, Lord, to do it. Lord Jesus, we praise you. That in your infinite goodness, you overcame our evil. That in your infinite goodness, Lord, you provided a righteousness for us that, that we couldn't earn. That in your infinite goodness, you were willing to bear as the innocent Lamb of God, our sins upon Yourself and suffer our condemnation so that we could be forgiven. That You lead us as a good shepherd. And that You lead us in the way that we should go. Thank You for Your faithfulness. Thank You for Your goodness. Holy Spirit, I bless you and I pray that you will move right now. Move right now in our midst to turn our hearts to the truth and to the Lord God. Let not one of us in this room be unmoved by what we've heard, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.